Welcome to Babel Undone, a podcast created by Premier in partnership with Archbishop Joseph D'Souza and the Good Shepherd Church of India. Bishop D'Souza is a renowned Christian intellectual and civil rights activist from India who leads the Good Shepherd Movement and the All India Christian Council. And I'm Johnny Moore, an American evangelical who serves as the president of the Congress of Christian Leaders and JDA Worldwide. We live in an interconnected world where the questions are complex. So on every episode of Babel Undone, Bishop D'Souza and I aim to bring the global church together in conversation about an important issue facing everyone. And we do it from different perspectives. Bishop comes from the East and I come from the West. So naturally, we meet in London. So uh, Bishop D'Souza, what is our topic today? We are going to look at Christian ecumenism or unity. Around the world, one of the sad things is that Christians love fighting with each other within our denominations and across denominations. And so we find it very difficult to interact with Christians from other denominations and traditions. Yet when the ISIS went to attack Christians in Iraq and Syria in 2014, they don't, didn't go looking for Baptists or Pentecostals or Catholics or Orthodox. They just went looking for the cross. And I can say that from the experience in India. The hard task of Christian unity requires that we unite around the cross first and not what makes us different. Today we have a profoundly influential Christian leader who has been a true leader in bringing the global church together. And his name is Archbishop Angelos. Uh, he is the the Archbishop of the Coptic Orthodox uh, Diocese uh, in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, he is one of the most influential religious leaders in the world. He's a dear personal friend of mine um, who has uh, inspired me to no end. I'm sure this conversation will inspire everyone uh, who, who listens listens to it. And he is joining us now. Welcome, Your Eminence. It's, uh, it's wonderful to meet you, even though it's by Zoom and connect with you, Archbishop. Um, so, so for those in our audience around the world, if they asked you, uh, if they asked who is who's Archbishop Angelus, what would you say? Well, I would hope that they would ask someone who likes me, so they can get a good answer. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, I, I, um, I'm Coptic Orthodox Archbishop of London at the moment. My, my my blessing is to serve the Diocese of London for Coptic Orthodox Church, as well as serve in a wider capacity as papal legate, representative of the Pope in the Church to the four nations, England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. My journey started when um, I was born in Egypt to a Coptic Orthodox family. Um, We migrated as a family to Australia when I was five. I did all my school and university education there, um, qualified, uh, started working, and then went back to Egypt to join the monastery. I had a monastic calling, and I wanted to join the monastery. I went to a wonderful monastery called the Monastery of St. Bishoy, which is halfway between Cairo and Alexandria. There was There is a monastic region, a historical monastic region called Skeet, or Setis, and it is where tens of thousands of monks and nuns have been over the past 1,500 years. And my monastery is actually a 4th century monastery, so wow. monks have lived there for 1,500 years. Um, I served as secretary to the head of our church, Pope, the late Pope Shenouda III. I was his disciple and his secretary for six years. 
and then he sent me to London. Um, I came out as a monk priest to serve a small community and then became a bishop in 1999, where I was an assistant bishop. It was it was his diocese, but I was his suffragan or assistant bishop. And then in 2017, London became an independent diocese, and I became the archbishop of the diocese. So a very quick snapshot. Besides the pastoral work I do, John, you will know well, uh, God has called me to a lot of advocacy work. It started with advocating for Coptic Christians in Egypt and then Christians in the Middle East and then people of all faiths in the Middle East, Yazidis in in, 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 in Iraq, Baha'is in Iran, uh, and so on and so forth. And then I think by the way things have been developing over the past years, called to widen that even further and, and speak about the Rohingya and the Uyghurs and, and, and the Ahmadiyya and Shabak and all of the communities that are persecuted purely because they have a faith or a belief. Hmm. Um, and I think when we come from a church that has been persecuted for centuries, we understand the pain. And so we're able to serve them through knowing the pain as well. We're, we're, not, we're not bystanders. We've actually lived the situation. And in some cases, we still live it. And that, I think, gives us the ability to serve others, because as Christians, I, I think you would both agree with me, the most unchristian thing we could possibly do is just advocate for Christians. Yeah, yeah. If if uh, we believe in, and, and I think we advocate for everyone because everyone has the same image and likeness of God within them, created as the same sanctity of life, and we are called as disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ to serve everyone equally. That I'm sure there is a very long answer to a very short question. <laughs> No, I hope that's helpful. A very, yeah. very, very, very good answer. I just wanted to uh, butt in there and ask: Has uh, uh, has India had a place in your advocacy with what's happening with uh, with the Christians or other 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 faiths? Absolutely. So India features in my ministry in a couple of ways. First of all, ecumenically, because the Indian Orthodox Church is a sister Oriental Orthodox Church. Yes, as so part of my ecumenical work. But also the persecution we've seen befalling um, uh, uh, Christian communities in India uh, in in the past months, we have been following that news as well. Very good, very good. Uh, I, I'll refer to you uh, as your eminence <laughs> to begin with. Um, but Archbishop, uh, a lot of people in my country... Um, of the United States came to know you um, because of your response to uh, one, one of the most horrific incidents of our of our modern time, when when twenty one Christians um, uh, were martyred on the on the beaches of Libya uh, by ISIS, and um, that that moment um, is a moment that uh, was impactful, I think, for all Christians. Yeah. Uh, but I can't imagine how impactful it was. Um, for the Coptic uh, Christian community, uh, why don't you take us back to uh, to that day um, when you when you heard the news, how you felt, how you responded? Um, what what was what was that day uh, like? Thank you, Johnny. It, it, you're right. It was. A, I think that was a pivotal moment that touched so many people, and I think changed our world hmm. in in many respects. Changed our world. Um, I remember the day precisely, it was a Sunday, and um, we had had 
rumblings all day of these men who were held hostage. Um, there were reports that they had been killed, and then the Egyptian foreign ministry said, no, they hadn't, and then they had, and there was a lot of toing and froing, and I was following as much as I could because I had a Sunday service in the morning, and I had other pastoral activities, and then I had a pastoral visit in the evening in London, and I got a call from um, El Jazeera English, and they said, oh, we're asking about the people in Libya, and I said, yes, we're, we're not quite sure what's happened, and they said, no, we've actually got a video now that confirms that they they have been killed. And would you come in to do a um, uh, an interview? And so I very quickly got into my car and said, of course, and I was driving there, and two things happened while I was driving there. The first is I, I got a, a text message from a very good friend of mine at BBC at the time, um, who said, this has happened. I know it's a very difficult time for you. I'm sorry to ask, would you like to come in and speak? And I answered and said, yes, of course, I'll come in. So after Al Jazeera, I went to BBC. But the other thing is I, I knew that people would be anxious and they would want to know. So I actually pulled my car over and I, I, I tweet you know, every day. I send out either a pastoral message or something informative and I wrote something to the effect that, you know, we've received confirmation that these men have died. We're praying repose for them, comfort for their families. And there were still a few letters, a few characters left at the end. And anyone who uses Twitter knows that those characters are gold dust and don't waste them. <laughs> and I, I, for some reason, I just hashtagged Father Forgive. Hmm. And... I felt that was really therapeutic to me. It, it suddenly calmed my heart. It cooled my heart. It put me in a very different mindset. And drove to the studio and did the first interview. And as they were interviewing me, the question came up, and I can't remember exactly how, but how do you feel? I said, of course, it's painful, but we you know as Christians, we forgive and then I went to the BBC and said the same thing about forgiveness. And for some reason, that forgiveness line just caught a lot of people off guard because they would have expected me to be quite angry, resentful, wanting some sort of retribution, crying out. And I, 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 I was crying out in my own way, and, and I was very sad and hurt in my own way. But the overwhelming feeling was we need to forgive. And Johnny, you'll know what this feels like, but in the following 24 hours, I had done something like 36 interviews huh. uh, between television, radio, print. Um, and people were just commenting on this forgiveness. And, and I, I told my part of the story. But then in the, in the days that followed, the message of forgiveness became even more amplified because it was the families of the men who died mm. who started to speak about forgiveness. And this was even more surreal than having you know, the bishop speaking about forgiveness. You expect that. 
but then the families who have just lost loved ones to speak out forgiveness and they were very genuine mm. and i think that touched a lot of people's hearts and realistically when you look at it that has been the message of the coptic orthodox church throughout as i said we've 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 faced waves of persecution since the reign of Diocletian. I mean, our, our calendar starts with the reign of Diocletian in 284 AD to honor the martyrs. And yet, we've never fallen into a state of victimhood. Mm. But we've been able to use that pain to reconcile our mission towards forgiveness and reconciliation. Yeah, it struck me um, uh you were you were kind to invite me to um, your uh, New Year's uh, celebration uh, in in commemoration uh, in in London, and the liturgy, which I I read before and probably in passing, uh, but I had never paid such close attention to the Coptic liturgy, and I was just amazed at how um, persecution and martyrdom and the lessons from it were so seamlessly integrated. In it, um, do you do you think that uh, the response of these family members was um, it was somehow inside of them because of generations of teaching? Is this just natural, you know, for for Coptic Christians? Like, because it doesn't seem natural for um, at least in my own my own community. Uh, even though you know you're supposed to say these things, um, you know, the instinct isn't always there. John, you're absolutely right. And the service you attended was the Vesper service for New Year. And the New Coptic Year focuses on new beginnings, of course, but also focuses on martyrdom. Hmm. Um, But it focuses on it positively. And if you remember any of the liturgy, it's not a, a sorrowful, mournful experience. It actually starts with the prayer of thanksgiving. It, it speaks about the experience of the martyrs witnessing faithful, vibrant. And just a side note, in our iconography, although we have such a rich martyrology, our martyrs are never depicted in a state of death or defeat. Wow. They're always depicted standing in glory with a halo that represents the afterlife because we know that and, and don't get me wrong as, as Coptic Christians we, we're not out to die you know, we like to live <laughs> we, we, we like life we, we have this we in like common <laughs> we, we like life here yeah. and life eternal and so for us it is a portal hmm. so no no one's going to go and want to die but as we saw with these men and these men weren't evangelists they weren't preachers they they were economic migrants they went from a poor village to work and sustain their families Mm. they had no idea this was going to happen to them but at the right time you know scripture tells us that we should not worry about what we say or we'll do for the holy spirit will send us word at that time wow and our Lord says that his peace he leaves us and no one can take away from us and his joy he gives us and no one can take away from us. We saw that on that beach and I reflected shortly after when we look at the uh, account of the three holy youth in the book of Daniel in the furnace and we're told that there was a fourth amongst them who was our Lord. 
I have always said I, I am absolutely categorically confident that there was a 22nd on that beach hmm. because the amount of peace and 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 the grace they had they must have been accompanied and and I think that was really important and then to see all of that play out and to change the rhetoric I was actually told by many of our own faithful and they said you know because I was quite quick to get that message out they said that message set the tone for all of us to respond because wow. if my first mission would have been angry everyone would have followed in anger well in, in this this conversation um, is partly about Christian unity and that was definitely the effect where I live all of a sudden um, we I'm an evangelical like we felt a sense of unity with the Coptic um, the Coptic church and you've always been a leader in that in that area yeah and in our part of the world too now I'm I'm an Anglican so uh, and I, I I remember speaking about what happened etc in the church but there was such a sense the divine sense that we are one and this were our brothers that gave their life and that and what made it very poignant was this was the life of an ancient faith ancient community which still still goes on and you know it affected all of us in in profound ways to understand the the common bond we have in our lord and in, in the spirit now i have two questions uh, archbishop one is uh, an immediate one how do you think this martyrdom this present martyrdom uh, impacted the whole Coptic Church. I mean, uh, you know, we saw when uh, the Australian missionary Graham Staines and his children were martyred in India 20, 25 years ago. It had a profound impact on the church in India. Uh, and like you did, his wife, when she was before the media, BBC, India, everybody, everybody expected her to come up with words of hate against the Hindus who had done it. But she she also, and also at the funeral, said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. I forgive them. And that was an extraordinary uh, message, but it did something to the to the Indian church. Uh, what, you know, what are couple of things that it did to the Indian church. That's my first question. And the second thing, how did it impact your ecumenical activity as you have taken it forward? Definitely made us stronger. And, you know, the impact of those men with their faces covered and the man in the middle who was tall and they made themselves look taller you know, Johnny, you'll know this more than I. I don't yeah. know how they did but sort of cinematography. They made them look taller and bigger. And this, there was this whole campaign that this video mm. was supposed to intimidate us all into subjection. Yeah. And subjugation, sorry. Um, it, it, it didn't. It actually, my reflection then was, who's actually the more courageous? Is it the men making threats with their faces covered or the ones who were kneeling graciously and 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 peacefully and proclaiming the name of their Lord till their very end. And that to us was a huge inspiration. I'm, I'm not sure if you both know, but in our liturgical life, 
we have four readings in every liturgy, every Eucharistic liturgy. One of them is in the Synexarium, which is the book of the saints of the day. So we are so used to hearing stories of martyrs that I think we become desensitized. Hmm. Every day there's a martyr. But to see this playing out on social media feeds and on our screens and in the 21st century suddenly linked us to our ancestral heritage and that experience thinking this is a continuum. And so definitely, definitely made us stronger and allowed, and I don't want to sound triumphalist or, or arrogant, but but the Coptic Orthodox Church has lived persecution for so long, but this incident, this heart-wrenching incident, allowed it to appear for what it really is, as a bastion of faith and a, and, and a holder of the faith. In, in, a, in an area that is inflamed. And in terms of our ecumenical engagement, um, I, I had accompanied the head of our church, His Holiness Pope Tawadros, to the Vatican to, vi to visit His Holiness Pope Francis. And uh, it was the first time around that time that um, His Holiness spoke about the ecumenism of blood. Mm. The fact that, the fact that you know, and it's been said, and a credit to a number of people, I'm sure who said it first, but it makes perfect sense, that when they come to kill us, they don't ask your denomination, they just ask if no. you're a Christian. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that is the thing, um, and, and that's what we've seen. And, you know, John, you're absolutely right. As soon as it happened, the outpouring of, of fraternal love and support from the evangelicals across the UK, I mean, there was a group of evangelical churches, I'm sure I remember, which instantly went out and bought the domain, I think, 21 Copts, <laughs> and started to raise money. That was an evangelical group. Wow. I remember coming um, to D.C. with you and speaking to evangelical leaders who, who were just so gracious and, and accommodating. And your grace with the Anglican Communion, I remember shortly after speaking at Church of England General Synod, here and they although it didn't go with the program they gave me a slot to speak and there was a standing ovation not for me but for everything that was represented there at the time so yes absolutely if you're talking about the three major streams of christianity orthodoxy catholicism and the post-reformation family everybody felt that they were part of this and, and you've been you've been at this work of christian unity for a long time, and and I, I'm just curious what lessons uh, you you've learned um, to help all of us as we build build relationships across across the body of Christ. I can tell you before the Coptic um, martyrs, and I, I say this with shame, but a lot of evangelicals, I mean, they didn't know what a Coptic Christian was. I mean, they in the in the United States, they 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 would have confused Coptic Christians uh, probably with Muslims just just because of ignorance. And yet to see the strength of this faith, I think it was a the terrorist in trying to kill Christianity ended up actually introducing the church to itself in a, in a new way. But um, what what have you learned uh, from from your work building relationships across um, across the, the Christian community around the world? Johnny, I don't know why I just 
I, I, you saw me smile. I don't know why, as you were speaking about this terrorist who was trying to kill and did the exact opposite. You know, when you try to split an atom, you get a lot of energy energy that is released. They were trying to break the church. Hmm. We were just part of the church. Well, Coptic Christians being the biggest Christian denomination in the Middle East makes us a, an obvious target. And so they thought that by hitting the church that is represents 80% of the Christians in the Middle East and one of the you know Orthodox churches and with ecumenical engagement, etc., etc. And in that in that same address, if you go back, the gentleman who was you know very nonchalantly waving his dagger around in this middle, he said to the Vatican, "You're next." <laughs> and so what that did is it released an incredible energy of prayer and fellowship and communion that that spoke to the world that shone as an incredible light but then that also bonded us mm. together um and yes I, i've i've been doing this for a long time and uh my my advice is, Johnny, you've known me for a long time. I am much more gray now than when you when you first <laughs> noticed me. If you don't want to go this gray, don't do ecumenism. <laughs> it's it's a wonderful journey, but it comes at a cost. I, I I think it's it's great. You know, I I believe in ecumenism. I believe in the message, the promise of our Lord that there will be one flock for one shepherd. Yeah. It may not be in my lifetime, but it doesn't mean I can't work towards it. You know, just seeing you both in the studio together mm. and being here with you, you know, means that there is still such a oneness in the body of Christ. We are we are a fractured body, yet a body. Mm. And I think in the fullness of time, we will see the glory of God. Yeah. And we will see the fulfillment of his promise yeah. for one flock, for one shepherd. I mean, you've, you brought, you've heard this, that Christian Christians of all kinds, we are the largest persecuted group for faith around the world, of all, all the faiths. And if at any time we needed this, I love the word, ecumenism of the blood, this coming together, despite our differences, it's now. And it, this oneness that will build, mm. you know, what happened to you all, built the Indian church, what happened in Sri Lanka to the Sri Lankan Christians affected many others. But this coming together becomes critical and then this talking together because we live in a different kind of world. Before when there was persecution, it was hidden from sight. We didn't know what happened in Russia. We, Today, you know, something happens, even though governments like China and all try to hide, the news gets out, and then the pictures get get out. And, you know, and then suddenly the world wakes up and, and then says, oh, I can't believe this is going on. But for the, for the church, it's a tremendous opportunity uh, that in persecution, we can be one. But it's also sad, I, I think, that it takes it takes persecution, right? And this is a sometimes, and this is a choice of leaders, and um, and I think that that all of us uh, can do a little more to bring the body of Christ um, closer closer together. 
Um, and uh, I guess um, Archbishop, uh, Archbishops, <laughs> um, maybe maybe we can uh, finish this conversation uh, with a word of advice um, to the next generation. Um, you know, you you lead church communions, you inspire and are training the next generation. Um, you know, I'm 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 wondering what each of you, um, what each of you wishes uh, that the leaders you're inspiring, what lessons they would take uh, going forward to bring together the church. Archbishop, your grace, you go first for our next um, generation. I think really we 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 have to learn from the generations past. Our our, our church is built on a great understanding of heritage. And we are links in the chain. We receive. There's a word in 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 Arabic called taslim. There's no equivalent in English, but basically it is um, that we receive. So to to the taslim means someone gives you something that you then pass on, hmm. and that is that is the image that our Lord Jesus Christ gave his disciples, and then from there he expects us to do the same. So I think we follow in those footsteps and we remember that, as the scriptures say, that everything that befalls us is just what is natural to life. Hmm. We've seen persecution, we've seen oppression, we've seen lots of different things. And I think it's important for us to not let that get in the way, but continue our witness and our faithfulness. Well, you you both have uh, uh, enriched my faith in different ways. and I and I hope um, the many many people that will listen to this conversation will will uh, uh, find themselves in, as inspired as you've uh, in, inspired inspired me. Um, I, I think I need to pick up the the Coptic liturgy and start <laughs> start reading it myself uh, every, every 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 single day. Um, but uh, oh, God forbid, and we pray every day there isn't more uh, persecution of Christians. Um, but um, thank God. Uh, for their for their testimony and please God uh, let it not take these horrific things um, for all of us uh, to see the same cross uh, in the way those um, people who mean for evil go looking for uh, for the cross oh, thank you uh, but Johnny one thing is that even if it comes when it comes if it comes it is accompanied by incredible grace because mm. our God will not leave us alone he does not amen he does not walk away from us. I this conversation, Bishop, was um, just uh, unbelievable for me. Listening to the two of you interact uh, with with one another as an Archbishop from India, um, an Archbishop in London who hails from the you know Coptic Orthodox Egyptian Egyptian Church, like. Uh, th- this was an incredible conversation. And, you know, I, 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 and the thing is, to our own uh, detriment, we as a church, global church, I'm talking about, because we have not been in contact and we have not taken the time to study, and then, then there is the arrogance, right, that we have it all when we don't have it all. Just talking to Bishop Archbishop uh, Anglos, and uh, seeing how the tradition of the church has built built him and built his people. And this whole thing about 
getting back to the liturgy of the ancient church. Mm. I think we as evangelicals have cheated ourselves from a tremendous heritage. You know, a small story is that uh, is uh, we I follow now the common prayer book, right, and read all prayers, etc. And I have a grandson, and uh, he sometimes wants to pray with me, and all. So I say, son, why don't we both read the Complan? It's a prayer for the night. And then he asks, what is it, Baba? What is it? I said, look, this prayer has been going on for 1,500 years in the wow. church. So really? From where? From Augustine's time. And so, you want to read it and you want to pray and I will join you. And he just wow. takes the prayer book, stands up and reads something that's been passed down the ages for 1,500 years. Mm. And it's a beautiful prayer at the end of the day. He prays for the dying, mm. prays for the traveler, prays for those in sorrow, thanks God for the day. Those are the kind of prayers that we, we don't have. We know, I mean, who would think for example, that every night as we go to sleep, people are dying, hmm. right? So pray for all those who are dying, you know? So this, there, is, there is this richness in the church which the Coptics and others have preserved for us, and I don't want to lose it, and I'm very happy that uh, you went for his liturgical service. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. It was powerful, and uh, it was long, and yet everyone was... Um, totally engaged and I and I did feel like I was I was uh stepping back into another time and I learned so much and and it's not like this isn't available to us it is it's available to all of us we just need to decide um to do it and a lot of times we don't because we somehow you know think you can't if you're a Baptist you 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 can't you can't read a, a Catholic book or if you're a Pentecostal you can't read an Orthodox book or if you but these are these are our shared stories, and uh, and it's done nothing but make my faith uh, make my faith stronger. And that's that's one of the reasons we took the route that we have taken twenty five years ago with the Good Shepherd Church. We want to bring in all of these traditions, the ancient, the Orthodox, you know, the the liturgies, what was good in the Reformation, and the charismatic. The and when, when enough time is given, people get, then we are, our, our faith is rich. And then to get up in the church and say, look, these are our believers. There was a time when you would write all of these people off, but they gave their life for Jesus without a whimper. They were true to the Lord and they were ordinary people. And so, so it's unbelievable. And so this was very, very good. And it's, al that. it's also why we're doing this, this podcast, um, you know, from the East and from the West and everything in between, hearing from the whole church about all the things that we're all thinking about. And uh, uh, this was a great example of it. Thank you, John. Thank you for joining us today for Babel Undone. If this conversation had you thinking, then why don't you share it with someone else? For more episodes of Babylon Don or other amazing content that helps Christians live out their faith, you should head over to premiere.plus. That's premier, P-R-E-M-I-E-R, uh, for the Americans listening in, dot plus. <laughs>